This is in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I have the opportunity and the honor to proclaim to you this afternoon. So let us read in God's Word, in connection with that from Isaiah 40. Let us read the full chapter. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales." Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth 
when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me so that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So far, the reading of God's word. Let us respond by singing together these words as put to music in hymn 15, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
invite you now to turn with me in your books of praise, if you have them, to Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In the back of the book of praise, we find that on page 517. As we begin, as you begin going through the Heidelberg Catechism, once again, come to Lord's Day 1. Here the church confesses, What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So far, the reading of the church's confession. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are many people, and I hope you are all among them, who love the Heidelberg Catechism, who love it for its beautiful and pastoral simplicity in examining the content and doctrine of the Word of God and its concentrated focus on comfort. Not only is comfort the introduction to the catechism, it's also the theme of the whole catechism. It pervades it all. It keeps resurfacing when questions are asked as to what comfort or what benefit is it to you to believe this or that particular doctrine. And so it's fair to say, if you wanted to summarize the whole Bible in one word, you would be hard-pressed to do better, to think of better than the word comfort. For the Bible speaks a word of comfort for sinners, sinners who turn to God through Christ. This comfort is first expressed in Genesis 3, verse 15, immediately after the fall into sin, when God promised that the seed of the woman would one day bruise the head of the serpent, would, would crush his head. And that, that theme is further unpacked and unfolded throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and it reaches its climax in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which does not end on a sad ending, but rather a glorious ending, a restoration and a, and a new beginning when all tears will be wiped away from our eyes, when there will be no more death. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, but there will be comfort, comfort unending, comfort unimaginable. And so it really was a wise choice on the part of the writers, the authors of the catechism to designate comfort as the theme of the catechism, for it is the theme of the whole scripture and it features centrally also in our theme this afternoon, summarized as follows, true comfort belongs to those who belong to to Christ. We'll see first the content of this comfort, and secondly, the conditions of this comfort. 
Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1 asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, the key word is comfort, but what is comfort? Well, normally when we speak of comfort, we're talking about how something or someone makes us feel. Take, for example, a young child who, who gets hurt. Maybe it could happen on the parking lot outside before or after the service. And, and then with a, a contorted face and, and a stream of tears flowing from their eyes, they make a, a beeline for their mom or dad. Why? To, to, to give them a little kiss, a little hug, say a word or two, and just like that, remove the pain. Well, that's the application of comfort. Or we might think of things like walking in a pair of new walking shoes or uh, new slippers or a warm blanket on a cold day. All these things, they provide comfort in different shapes and fashions. And in my former hometown, which may, some, some of you may know, in Barhead, Alberta, there was a, a furniture business called Comfort Corner with the insinuation that there you could buy comfort and you could take it home with you though the price wasn't always so comfortable for your wallet, but, but I digress. In this sense, everybody is looking for comfort. But when the catechism is speaking of comfort here, it's not speaking of physical comfort but, or even of emotional comfort, but it's speaking of spiritual comfort first and foremost. It's speaking of comfort for body and soul. And it goes without saying that all of us need that comfort. In fact, the first question really implies it. For you see, the question doesn't ask, do you need some comfort? It assumes that you need, you do need this comfort. So it skips that question, jumps straight to what is that comfort? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here we need to examine the reason why we need comfort. Basically, if we boil it down, it's because of sin. It's because of sin and its effects. In Genesis 3, we're presented with a story of Adam and Eve and the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eating of the fruit in disobedience to the Lord's command. And in, in such a way, sin was introduced into the world. It infiltrated this world and with sin came misery, the, the kinds of misery that we, we hear about on the news on a regular basis, including corruption, crime, abuse, sickness, Disease, poverty, starvation, natural disasters, all these and more are the result of the fall into sin by Adam and Eve. And what is more, because of their fall, we stand fallen too under the just wrath and judgment of God. And we deserve to die, all of us, not only physically but also spiritually. When we understand this, when we understand the consequences of the fall for us and our children, for this whole world, then it should should cause us to be profoundly humbled. This life, this world, is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not operating according to the way that God made things to be. The world was made good, but it has since been, been marred by sin. And the Bible teaches that Through our disobedience in Adam, we brought ruin to this wonderful world, and therefore, we should die. We need that that conviction to sink in. The reality that the Bible could have ended 
right there at Genesis 3. That the book could be closed, end of story, sin, cosmic treason, cosmic ruin. But thanks be to God that that's not the case. For there's, there is the promise that God gives, the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The Lord comes not with a message of judgment, but really with a message of salvation. Another way to say it is that he speaks words of comfort. Now, what is this comfort? Well, it's not the comfort that, that so many people think of and are, are looking for in this world today in all the wrong places, looking for true and lasting comfort where it cannot be found. Some, for, some look for it in the things of this world. Some look for it in the pleasures of this world. Drugs and alcohol and sex and relationships, sports and entertainment, money, popularity, in their carefully curated identity or appearance, in worldly philosophies, in ideas, in religions. There are many people even in the church who similarly are looking for comfort in all the wrong places, chasing after the wind in terms of worldly success and prosperity. And there's also the danger for professing Christians to find their identity not in Christ, where it should be, but in their religious observances, in their piety, in their learning, in their knowledge, in their experiences, in their good works, in their church membership, in their baptism, in their seriousness, in their orthodoxy, in their staunch conservatism. Or to make any or all of those things the source of their comfort, now, they would never say that, but that's what they think. That's how they operate. That's somehow, some way, at the end of the day, they believe that, or at the end of the day or at the end of their life, these things will make a difference and that they will count for something. But brothers and sisters, boys and girls, none of these things can provide the comfort that we need. First, why not? Well, first of all, because these comforts are only temporary. That is, they don't last. They don't have staying power. There are many pleasures and good things in the world, and you can enjoy many of them legitimately in, and in the Lord's timing. Nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that life has to offer in such a way as long as they align with God's will and don't become idols. But these things won't provide you with the comfort that you need. They, the comfort that they offer is here today and gone tomorrow. And secondly, these things don't provide the comfort that we need because no material pleasure, no amount of riches, and nothing in this world can provide will ultimately satisfy us either. Nor will they s secure the comfort necessary to address our deepest spiritual need for they can do nothing to satisfy God's wrath against sin or to reconcile a sinner to a righteous and holy God. And they do nothing to give us entrance into the kingdom of glory. No, they're only for today, those comforts. And so where can we find the comfort that we need, the comfort that lasts? Well, congregation, we need to look away from the things of this world and we need to look toward the triune God, specifically to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our catechism is doing for us. That's how our catechism is teaching us where to find our only comfort in life and in death, that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our comfort. 
that's our only comfort for life and death and body and soul. It's knowing that I and you belong to Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to say that to someone, somebody today, they might look at you and think that you're rather strange. And that's, that's because of the idea of, of, of belonging to someone is not something that resonates so quickly with people. Something, it won't make people think of comfort, but rather of, of oppression. That sounds like oppression to me especially if the one that we belong to is God in our natural fallen state. Nobody wants that. We want to be our own masters, masters of our own destiny. We want to think how we want to think. We want to act how we want to act. We want to believe what we want to believe. We want to chart and navigate our own way through life. Who wants to belong to another? The catechism says no. Our true and only comfort is comes from knowing that we belong to Christ. Now, why is that a comfort then? What is it that makes belonging to Christ so special that it brings comfort? Well, it's this. If we belong to Christ, then we share in many great and wonderful blessings that he has obtained for us and which he alone can give to us. And they're mentioned for us in question and answer one. There are five benefits for belonging to Jesus Christ. The first is satisfaction. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That is, he met the requirements of God's law. He submit himself to the requirements of God's wrath when he suffered and died. And in doing so, he, he turned the, God's wrath away from his people and turned, him, turned it toward him, himself. The Well, the Lord speaks of this very thing in Isaiah 40 when the people of Israel were being sent into exile and captivity under God's judgment because of their sin. And as a result, they were in great distress. Think of the distress you would be in if you were there. If you were among the people of Israel, their property had been taken away from them. They'd been evicted from their homes and the temple had been destroyed. And they were forced to have to live off in a strange and far-off country. And now Isaiah is sent to them to proclaim comfort. A message of comfort. Why? Because her iniquity was pardoned. And she had received from the Lord double for all her sins. The wrath of God against the sins of his people had been satisfied and turned away from them. And as a result, there was peace with God between God and man. And Isaiah could go proclaiming comfort, comfort. And that's a message that we too may hear still today, that there is peace in Jesus Christ who removes the sin that causes separation from God. And then the second benefit is deliverance. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. That's saying by nature, we are under the devil's power. But when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he he loosens the devil's stranglehold on us and he defeats the devil's power once and for all. Well, Christ leads us out of the ultimate house of slavery to sin and Satan and leads us into the freedom and the righteousness and the glory of the promised land, the ultimate promised land. 
And then further, thirdly, he also preserves us so that not a hair can fall from our heads. This expresses how he keeps us. God keeps his people through Christ. See, left to ourselves, we would never make it. But what we could never do, God does for us. And this truth is captured by Paul when he writes in Romans that he is, God is not against us, but rather he is for us. And he promised this to his people long before, also through Isaiah, saying that he would surely come through on his promises to rescue them and deliver them when he said, look at what I have made. Look at the stars of the heavens. I know them all individually. Not one of them is missing. All the nations of the earth, they are like grains of sand on the scales. They're, they're meaningless in a sense. They're nothing. They're insignificant compared to my majesty. And unlike human saviors, deliverers, and human powers who all fade and grow weary and ultimately cannot go on forever, I, the Lord, on the other hand, never faint or grow weary. I will keep you down to the last hair, down to the very end. You can be sure of that. That is your comfort. And then fourth, question and answer one tells us that Christ also gives us assurance of eternal life. Well, to assure means to guarantee. He guarantees the salvation that he obtained and promised that will ultimately result in the fullness of life everlasting with Jesus Christ. And how we need that assurance, brothers and sisters, for at times as believers we struggle to know this, to remember this, to believe this, to believe, is this really for me? Do I, for I know myself well enough to know that I'm unworthy, I'm un, undeserving of these great benefits, and it can be so easy to fall into doubt. But to help us in this, we're given the Holy Spirit to assure us that Christ's benefits truly are ours. And then lastly and fifthly, he gives new life. The catechism says he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. By nature, we are not interested in living for Christ, knowing that this means often a road of difficulty, means self-sacrifice, means taking up our cross and following him wherever he leads. Who by nature does not want to live for himself or for his own pleasure. Well, that battle, that struggle ranges within us until the day we die. And yet, God will take care of that too by giving us his spirit so that, so that through him we may hate our sin, that we may make war with it, that we may desire instead to live according to the commandments of God. And so he works that new life in us in that way, gives us the grace to live to his glory in, in that way of life. Well, these are the things that bring us peace in life and, and in death because they put us at peace with God. These are the benefits that belong to those who belong to Christ, and that's why he is at the center of our only comfort because belonging to him, we have everything that we need for today, for tomorrow, and for all eternity. We come now to our second point, looking at the conditions of this comfort. Well, brothers and sisters, we must understand that this comfort spoken of here in Lord's Day 1 does not become ours automatically. Okay, it doesn't come to us 
and become ours automatically. It doesn't become ours because we are born into a family of believing parents or because we attend a Christian church or because we're baptized as members of the covenant of grace. There's a certain way of thinking which can exist even in in Reformed churches where it's assumed that that's the way that it goes, but that's not true. What is true is that this comfort is freely offered to us and promised to us in God's grace, in God's covenant, but it becomes ours only by way of personal conversion, only by way of personal faith and repentance in Christ. That's what question and answer two is all about. The Catechism asks, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer is three, three things. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am to be delivered from my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Well, what do we have here? In these well-known words that form the framework of the whole Catechism. Well, what we have here this is an outline, an overview of the entire catechism, and it too is meant to teach us how in Lord's Day 2 to 4, we must examine the doctrine regarding our sins and misery, the guilt part. And in Lord's Day 5 to 31, how I am delivered from my sins and misery, the, the grace part, the grace in Christ that we receive. And then Lord's Day 32 to 52, deal with the thankfulness that I owe God. That's the gratitude part. So guilt, grace, gratitude. So the point that the catechism writers are making here is that in order to enjoy the comfort of belonging to Christ, then we need to know something of these three things in order to live and die happily and and enjoy the comfort that God promises. We need to know these three things. And boys and girls may say to you that these are the three most important things that you will ever know in your entire life. That's not an understatement because your entire, your, your eternal destination hangs in the balance depending on if you know and believe these three things. That's not to say that we have to know everything about these three things. That's impossible. Nobody, not even the most aged and most learned one in this room knows everything that there is to know about these three things about our sin about the riches of grace in christ about living the life of gratitude but but there must be something there must be a beginning at least with a continual yearning for more growth in this knowledge in these three things for though there's an obvious order here in terms of first second third that doesn't mean that that are growing in any of these areas should ever end. No, we never graduate from one to, grow, to go to the other in this school of knowledge. Now, in this regard, the three sections of the catechism are not like, they're not like three sections or segments of a rocket ship. If you think for a minute about a rocket ship designed in three sections, three components, even as the young children here will understand, when a rocket ship blasts off, what happens is a, is a big initial explosion, controlled and designed, of course, and, and that rocket slowly lifts off the ground. And, and, and then after all the fuel has been spent that, that, to, to boost that rocket upward, 
then, then the bottom piece of that rocket isn't needed anymore, and so it falls away, falls to the ground. And when all the fuel is spent in the second part of the rocket, then, then that part too falls away. So that, that little spacecraft there, the, the very top of the rocket, is what enters into orbit and is able to fly freely on its own and under its own limited power. Again, I say that that's not how it works here. It's not that we now know something about our sin, so now we may move on from there and, and go on to speak of the victory in the Christian life. No, that, that, that's a distortion of biblical truth and a distortion of what the catechism is actually teaching. For it's more helpful here to think of these three things as, as the ABCs of the Christian life. The ABCs of the Christian life. Now, anyone will know after learning the ABCs of the alphabet, it wasn't that you could now drop them, that you're now done with them, done with these letters, never need them again. No. They are, then our reading, our writing, our speaking, our spelling would all be stunted, stifled, be short-circuited. You really cannot live without making use of the ABCs. And likewise, brothers and sisters, do not stifle or stunt or short-circuit your learning, your growing in the knowledge of what God has revealed about your only comfort and why you need it and where it is to be found. For there is a danger that our determination level to learn might, might also drop and decline and possibly even dissolve if we think that we can leave behind the learning process as if it was simply for our younger days, perhaps. Instead, as we get older and the more experienced in life that we get, we must strive even then to know more about our sin and our Savior and our service. And to do that by placing ourselves under the preaching again and again and digging into the Scriptures as much as we're able to do to revisit these truths again and again and again. So as we come near to the Conclusion of this sermon, let me simply ask you, do you have a knowledge of these three things and a continuing desire to know them more, to know them better? This knowledge doesn't simply come by possessing a Bible and a book of praise and knowing your way around them and knowing where the confessions can be found. We don't learn this knowledge through osmosis in a family in the family we live in, or in the group of friends that we belong to, or by merely existing within a church community. Know these, and I dare say also that we don't learn this knowledge by simply going to catechism class, or by hearing some sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism. These things can only be truly known if they are revealed to us, and the Lord himself teaches us these things to us personally by his word and spirit, imparting to us insight and understanding. And so the question for all of us this afternoon is, has the Lord taught me and you to know these things in my and your own life? Am I still learning these things? Are you still learning these things? Am I still growing in the knowledge necessary to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And are you as well? You see, it is a great joy to know this comfort, to know 
that being, that being united to Christ, we can live and die happily because of what is ours today and what will be ours tomorrow and what will never be taken away. That's why the catechism throws that word joy into the catechism, in, it smuggles it into the question there in question two, that we can live in the joy of this comfort. For brothers and sisters, one of two things must be true. Either we belong to Christ or we do not belong to Christ. It's that simple. Comfort in Christ or no comfort outside of Christ. And there's nothing in between. It's either one or the other. And may the Lord give us grace to say from the heart, I know where my comfort is found. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us respond in song by singing the words of Lord's Day 1 in, as set to music in hymn 64, stanzas 1 and 2.